0: Hey, everybody, hey, everybody, welcome to season two of scaling your startup. This is episode 10. What an amazing season we've had. If you want to watch all of these videos from some of the greatest founders in the industry, you just go to thisweekinstartups.com scale, thisweekinstartups.com scale. What I would recommend doing since we're all working from home is that you take these 10 episodes and you have a watch party. Maybe you do one per week over 10 weeks or two per week over five weeks with your team and you watch these together and you take notes or you watch them on your own, you take your notes and then you have a conversation about it afterwards. But this is some of the greatest advice you're going to get on topics including uh, this season growth, social media, copywriting, critically important, sales, fundraising product, also critically important, SEO and conversions. Uh, Something that's very tactical, but very important, how to build a great culture and how to operate efficiently with low burn. We also get into customer success. But today, we're ending with a bang. One of the great product people uh, is with us today, my good friend, Des Trainer, the CEO of Intercom, a company that has hit 150 million in revenue in 2020. And it's probably much more in 2021. Uh, Des is going to share a brand new talk for the first time here, which is his very best advice for seed and Series A startups, and he knocks it out of the park. I do some Q&A with him at the end of the episode where we get into work from home and the efficiency that it has um, brought about for running startups. But he really breaks down the importance of speed in a startup and how to have a product-customer Uh, fit discussion within your startup and make that your true North star talks about interviewing users and defining important metrics, not hackable metrics, things you can fake. Um, And just everything you need to know about scaling your startup. It's really just the cherry on top of a great season. Thank you to Emmy award-winning producer Jackie for putting together season two. And thank you to our partners who sponsored this series, which millions of people will watch uh, this year and into the future years. To really just sharpen your blade and to be a better founder or a better executive at your startup so that you increase your chances of winning and you increase your chances of winning big we talk about efficiency in this uh, episode and repeatability for startups it's just tremendous um and in many ways this is a great uh video to start with so if even have it if you're just getting to the series Starting with this video and then working backwards to the more tactical talks might actually be a better order, kind of like reading the last chapter of a novel, which some people tell me they do. I I think that's a terrible idea, but uh, I've heard that before. All right. So stick with
1: us. Scaling Your Startup Season 2 is brought to you by NetSuite. Don't let old software and spreadsheets slow you down anymore. Upgrade to NetSuite the world's number one cloud business system head to netsuite.com slash twist for the special financing program our crowd helps you invest early in pre-ipo companies alongside professional vcs if you're interested in investing you can join our crowd for free at ourcrowdcom slash twist and BrainBase. Protecting your idea should be simple. Built by founders, for founders, BrainBase File is a clean and automated trademark filing platform that gives anyone the ability to protect their idea. File now for just $169 at brainbase.com slash twist by using code twist.
2: Thanks, Jason. Uh, I'm excited to give this presentation. In prepping it, I really wanted to focus on what are the important pieces of startup advice? The stuff that I wish we had known back then. And in that regard, I'm trying to separate us from this epidemic of startup advice. And if you're in a startup, you're probably one of the most over-advised people in the world up there with politicians and world leaders. There is a never-ending deluge of just people telling you all the stuff you need to do. And it just doesn't stop. And if you read it all, you'll never build a startup, I promise you. I hope to tell you about the bits that I believe matter a lot. It's not to say the other stuff doesn't matter, but there are some fundamental invariants about startups that succeed. And that's what I want to talk about today. There's four areas I'm going to cover. Um, The importance of a vision and a mission for a company. The need for speed, not to be totally Tom Cruise-like about it. Uh, product-customer fit and product-market fit. And I think these two things are best considered separately. So starting with uh, vision and mission, there is a tendency to say, start a startup with the idea that you want to explore a certain space. We think we should do something in the ticket tracking space or project management or whatever. Well, doing it without a mission leaves you with a really blurry pitch or way to charm people into joining your company, investing in your company, Uh, you know, adopting your product, referring it, even just listening to you. A mission answers the question, why do you exist other than making money? Most companies exist to make money, but they usually have some higher order purpose that they're trying to serve. And I think like at Intercom, we say our mission is to make internet business personal. That's what we want to do. Stripe's mission is to increase the GDP of the internet. I think Uber's is to make transportation as reliable as running water. There are like great missions out there, but they're very clear about what what will be better afterwards. And a vision is kind of the sort of the landscape after you've succeeded. Like what does the future look like because of your company? Uh, what, what what change are you trying to bring about in the world? And it's really important in the early days to kind of get these things down. They will inspire people to want to listen to you, to follow your company. They will like inform decisions you make. Uh, If everyone knows what the end goal is, there's less existential discussion about, like, should we do X or Y? Because the mission usually answers that question. Your brand becomes a lot clearer what you actually stand for. Customers know what they're buying into. Like, do you think that, you know, project management should be run one way or the other? Do you think that, like, online commerce should be easy or hard? Do you think it should be, like, legally compliant or should it be built for developers like these are the sort of things that will like bleed out of having a strong mission and a strong vision. And lastly, your employees, you want a team inspired by shared purpose, a shared purpose. And uh, and it can't just be revenue growth or like monthly metrics. And I think you should be skeptical if people are excited about owning a chunk of your company, but not excited about what the company does. Uh, it, it's It's frankly dangerous. You want people to really believe in the mission. That's a short section. I really think it's fundamental uh, to early stage startups, specifically when I'm in advising or investing. When I've ever, whenever I get a blurry answer to what, it, what the hell is the whole thing about, what is the mission, usually that blurriness shows up everywhere. The features you build, the types of customers you attract, the employees you have, that's never, never good. Um, it's also impossible to move fast without it. And moving fast is perhaps the dominant characteristic of a successful startup. We use the word startup a lot here uh, and people might, it often gets over overused and that people would refer to like a new coffee shop as a startup or a cinema or a restaurant or a law firm. And like the, the key difference to me is like startups are just designed in every way to grow fast. And speed is literally the thing. It is what makes them backable as businesses. I share this chart a lot in Intercom. To make a single point Uh, at Intercom, we grew really fast and we continue to grow really fast. But specifically in one period, we went from 1 million to 50 million in three years. That's obviously quite fast, right? You 50x in three years, it's, it's a phenomenal amount when you get to like, you know, tens of millions of dollars. The point I always have to stress to folks is it's not the 50 million that makes us valuable. It's the three years that makes us valuable. And that is like the core idea of speed. It's like everything has to happen at breakneck speed. You should be really uncomfortable with things moving at a normal pace or even a fast pace. The challenge is really how can everything move as fast as it possibly can with obviously some requirement of sustainability in that uh, it can't break along the way, but it needs to be moving damn fast. I also tell a story of two different companies. Uh, and I'm, you know, this is obviously a, a sort of parable. I'm not talking about specific companies, but I would say, Having invested and advised in, uh, I don't know, like 50 companies at this stage, there's some just generic truth to this. Um, Companies that ship fast always, always outperform. In all cases, I've never seen anything to the exception.
0: School's out for summer, but if your business is running on outdated software, you'll never get a break. Failing to graduate to NetSuite is like being stuck in summer school while your friends are free to party in the roaring 20s. Here we go. Manual processes, integration difficulties, and glitchy delays will leave you scrambling for the numbers you need. And you need to know your numbers cold, whether you're raising money or you're making a prediction or you're eventually going to go public. Maybe you're going to SPAC. You're going to need to know your numbers cold. This is how great organizations run and great organizations run on NetSuite by Oracle because they can scale with you no matter how big your business grows. With visibility and control of your financials, inventory, HR, e-commerce, and more, NetSuite is everything you need to grow all in one place. And 93% of surveyed businesses increased their visibility and control since graduating from outdated software to NetSuite. So go ahead and switch to NetSuite today and close your books in no time and on time so you look more credible to your investors and your board. Okay, special financing is back. NetSuite is offering a -a one-of-a-kind financing program only for those ready to graduate from all this outdated software that's slowing you down. So head over to netsuite.com slash twist today. That's special financing at netsuite.com slash twist.
2: A company can have a small idea. It doesn't even need to be the huge idea. But if they're moving fast, what you'll see is they're just constantly shipping to this drum. And because they're constantly shipping, they can grow a user base. And by the time they hit month six, they have a lot of people who've been hearing about the product, using the product, and most crucially, giving feedback about the product. And that is just a really valuable place to be after six months. We've released two or three things. We've got a swarm of customers and we know what they want to use us for. And We're talking to them regularly and we're learning about our space. Companies that don't tend to basically take six months and maybe release. And the danger there is they have no users. They have no feedback. They have no understanding. Which company would you rather be of these two? You want to be the one that is just moving phenomenally quickly. And it's easy to say, sure thing, right? So you get it move fast. What are the ingredients of speed? For me, like the, there are lots, but there's a few I'll call out that really matter at the early stages, uh, culture, tooling, focus, and process. So starting with culture, there are things that we baked into Intercom from the early days that I encourage everyone to do uh, to, to keep the speed alive. One of them is we just made it very clear at the very start, the very first blog post our VP of engineering wrote was simply this. Shipping is our heartbeat. We have to do it on a regular rhythm, consistent. And we tell everyone that as we interview them, we tell them as they start. We say, this is a company that ships maniacally fast. Today, we're, we'll be 10 years old in August. We sh- we still deploy new changes to production about 200 times a day. We ship about 180 to 200 user ch- user-facing significant product changes a year. We care deeply about this. Every Friday, the whole team get together and literally teams demo what they've shipped that week. And if your team has gone a while without demoing, that is usually a sign that something's not good here. We also make the same claim to our customers that our product will continuously get better as you use it. And we hold ourselves accountable to this standard. And it's just, it's, it's just leaked into every aspect of how we think is that this is a company that produces software at a really rapid pace. We also build stuff that helps. For example, we track a thing called a velocity risk register. Now, this is probably too much for the stage you're at. But basically what this is, is a, a register that asks simply, what is slowing us down? Is anything slowing us down? And everything is allowed to be put in here. Des is on holidays, or like uh, it takes too long to get a decision made, or this code base is janky, or this integration is, is like not working or whatever, but anything that slows us down we will uh, invest in solving because we believe that much about speed. There are two things we do. We build value for our customers and we increase our ability to do that fast. That's the only two things we do. The other area is like we invest in any sort of repurposable or reusable technology. So we built out a pattern library, which meant that instead of having to redesign every piece of UI every single time, we just build stuff that lets us consistently take components off the shelf. Again, not because it's fun, not because it's cool, entirely because it speeds us up. A third degree of speed is just pure focus. Is everyone focused on the right thing? You can have a large team of really valuable people, but if they're not all working together, you will not be moving fast. If you can get them to actually work in a specific direction uh, and all be aligned around a mission or product strategy, you will get a lot more speed and we spend so much time reminding people, here's what we're doing. Here's the objective. Here's what this product will do. Here's the customer we're building it for. Here's why they want it. Here's the metrics they hope the impact. We just consistently focus uh, our people on exactly what matters and really fight against any distraction. And even within that, that's, you know, that's just a product org in a sense. As you grow, you will add things like product marketing, uh, you'll add brand analytics, sales. And you actually need all those focused on the same thing too, because if they're unfocused, it will slow you down. And lastly, process. Now, process is a funny thing to talk about in the same breath as speed. And I I would say you should be skeptical of a lot of process, but some amount essential. Good process, generally speaking, it stops you from doing bad, but it doesn't prevent you from being world class. Bad process stops you from doing anything bad at the cost of doing anything good. You should one, Probably have some process to to hold you accountable to doing regular good work in your company. But two, be really wary if that process is in anything anything looking like slowing you down. You should be worried. Because speed is literally the piece that startups trade Right, It's the difference between a startup and everything else. People will often question you about, well, Des, you're talking about just going maniacally fast. Well, we want to build a really beautiful, artisanal, fancy product. To which I say, fast gets good before good gets fast. That is consistently my experience. There is a famous old story about like this competition of like who could make the perfect vase. Team A was told they have to make 100 vases in one hour and team B was told you have to make one perfect vase and you have one hour to do it. Who do you think makes more perfect vases? The answer is always team A. Why? Because they iterate and they learn and they learn and they keep getting faster and better. Speed is just essential, and it's the surest thing that turns me off a startup is if they don't move quickly. Once you know what you're doing, the first step, everyone jumps into this idea of product market fit. And my fear about startups focusing on product market fit is that they can often skip the step of actually just generally good product fit. Product market fit asks questions about how do we reach all our customers and how do we get them in like deep and cheap SEO-friendly ways and all that sort of stuff. None of that matters until you have a good product. None of it. Your product has to be loved before you could even tolerate people only liking your product. And I really worry when I see folks chasing the hacks and the optimizations and the tests and the loops to try and, like, you know, uh, make the best of what they have when what they have isn't something that fundamentally solves the user problem. All products solve problems. That's what there exists to do. And for me, product customer fit means for a given customer. Do they use our product every time the problem occurs? And does it solve their product every time? When I say customer here, and I really want to be careful, a lot of early stage startups will count their friends, their family, their their friends within the same incubator, etc. as their customers. They're too forgiving. They won't uninstall you or delete you or whatever. You need to have people who have no reason to use you other than the fact that you solved their problem. That's the sort of people you need to be listening to at this stage. And you need to find out do they use the product every time this problem occurs? And does it solve their problem every time? One area that we often, uh, you know, one methodology, if like, we apply is this idea of jobs to be done. There's a whole heap to be said about jobs to be done, and I won't be saying it now. I did write a book on it, and Intercom's published a lot of stuff on it. But generally speaking, the more you understand the problem, the more the solution becomes self-evident. Uh, a simple example of this would be to take... Um, this scenario here. So what I'm going to show you is a situation where the more precisely you can define a situation, the more obvious the solution is. If you're just hungry, loads of things, soups, salads, steaks, sandwiches, everything can solve the I'm just hungry problem. What if you're in a rush? Well, I guess you're not going to order a steak, you might not uh, want to wait around for a salad to be prepped. What if you're in a rush and you're starving? Well, maybe that takes the salad off the table for sure. What if you're in a rush and you're starving and you need to eat with one hand while you're on the go because you don't know when you're getting another chance to eat? Well, now you're taking everything off the table except for stuff that can be eaten quickly, ordered quickly, uh, and perhaps is even a little bit tidy to eat. And you start to get a more refined definition of what it is you're supposed to do. In this case, it's pizza or a burger or whatever. But it's it, you know this is a simple example. I'll give you some softer examples in a second. But the idea is the more you can specify the exact problem, the more you can specify the exact solution. So you really need to understand the job that your product does. There's three components to understanding the job. You first want to be interviewing your users. Secondly, you use that information to scope your product down and kind of write, where where does it start and where does it stop? And lastly, you want to pick metrics then that matter for your definition of do we solve the job. So When it comes to interviewing users, what a lot of people will do is just start a conversation with everyone who uses their product. And that's dangerous because you can't tell one group from another. It's really useful if you can break them down into specific types of people. People who just started trying to use your product today. People who used it last week but stopped this week. People who are trying it out. So if you have a trial function or if they're in their first few days. uh, People who are shopping around as in they downloaded it, but they download a lot of stuff at the time. Your actual active customers, like as in the people who are using your product, it seems, and then people who became inactive, they were once active. Now, you won't have all of these at the early days of a startup. You'll definitely have new, you'll definitely have active if things are going okay, and you'll definitely have churned. But it's really useful to be able to break these apart in terms of the points in the life cycle because you'll learn different things from each of them. New customers will tell you, I downloaded your app because I wanted to blah. whereas uh current customers will be like i thought you did x but you don't or you don't do it well enough your daily active or your monthly active like the people who you define to be your actual customers they'll tell you exactly what it is uh, that you do for them in this world but more importantly something to listen out for is what caused them initially to go looking for your product what actually was the trigger point that went had them go and download the app or visit your site or sign up or whatever and also what makes them launch it on a regular basis? When you have all this information, you can use this to draw well, what we call storyboards. Uh, a storyboard uh, is something that just summarizes everything that we know about why people start using the product. For us, this is just where does the product start and stop? So we're like, you know, this, this is an actual real intercom one from a few years ago. Uh, one of the jobs was I have a problem with customer support. Help me fix that problem today. And all these words are deliberately chosen. So today means I want to like install the thing and make the problem go away in the next 24 hours. It does not mean I want to begin on a journey or whatever. Um the thing we look out for, the sort of storyline you see at the bottom, it's like the Pixar pitch, like once upon a time, every day, until one day. What well, we're really trying to drill in there, like a detective almost, we're just trying to drill into specifically what happened in your in your life such that our product came into it. And um, we do this for every release that we have in intercom, right? Uh, We want to find out uh, what happened such that you started needing our product. What did it feel like to start using our product? How did you know our product was the right one for you? What was your definition of success? And do you ever think you'll stop using our product? These are the things that we want to hear from your customers. And we use all of this to define metrics that matter.
0: It's time for another R Crowd deal of the week. Right now you can join our Crowd's investment in Zippin. Zippin is building checkout free technology for the trillion dollar retail industry. According to the deal memo, Zippin, Z-I-P-P-I-N, is already deployed by the world's largest food service company, so they're ahead of the game as the retail world adopts the safety and efficiency of contactless payments. You can get in early on Zippin and other unique opportunities at RCrowd.com twist. By the way, did you know that our crowd investors were able to get in on some of the best IPOs of 2019 and 2020? They benefited from companies IPOing like Beyond Meat and Lemonade, and some of our crowd companies have been acquired by buyers like Intel, Nike, Microsoft, Oracle, and Uber. With our crowd, accredited investors can participate in single company deals for as little as $10,000 or one of Our crowd's funds for as little as $50,000. Again, the rcrowd account is free. Just go to O-U-R-C-R-O-W-D dot com slash twist.
2: A lot of startups early on will tend to just use what I would call hackable metrics, monthly active users or DAOs or email opens or something like that. But they don't tell you what you need to know. Um, it's very easy to sort of hack these things. And... I think the actual question you really need to know is, do they use my product every time it matters? So the question you need to learn from users is, what's the expected problem frequency or the trigger that causes me to use it? So when X happens, I use Y. When I land in a new city, I use Uber. Or every X, I use Y. Every day, I check my mail. Or every day, I, you know, I support my customers or whatever. And that's the, the definition of are they using it frequently enough? And every product has some expected frequency. If you're building payroll software, payrolls paid month, w- once per month, right? Support teams use their product every day. News apps are used probably every day, probably in short bursts. Fitness apps are probably used on a weekly basis. Social apps on a daily basis. But that's just the frequency. The second piece is. Are you fully solving the problem? So don't just look at, did they log in or did they launch the app? But you actually have to go a step further and say, well, what does it look like to meaningfully solve the problem? And it could be like they started a workout, they were active for more than five minutes, they recorded it, saved it, and maybe they shared it too. That might be like the full soup to nuts of what it takes to actually solve that problem. Or they scanned a section, they read an article, they opened the newsletter or something like that. That might be what it takes to say, uh, solve the I'm bored on a commute or whatever problem. But you should be able to represent these things in metrics. So when people ask you uh, how many users you have, it's easy to say seven thousand or whatever. But that seven thousand could be a load of people, you know, passively using it, dabbling, not doing anything meaningful. What we obsess about in Intercom is what we call active, engaged, fully configured customers. They're using the best of Intercom according to their price plan. They're using it in all the ways they can, and they're not using competing products in any way. So we we know like. Hey, if, if support volume drops from a customer, the chances are they're getting that support volume somewhere else. So we care about these things, but it's really important to focus on these metrics that matter and not just these superficial ones. Superficial ones are fine when you're pitching an investor because you they might not give you the time to explain all of these variables. But before you're pitching an investor, you're pitching yourself. Is this working? And this is the stuff you care about. And you know you've product customer fit when for some amount of people, and it doesn't need to be a huge amount, it doesn't need to be thousands yet, when you you could even just have like 40 or 50 people, but every time they have the problem, they use your product and it solves it completely. And I remember like, uh, I think uh, superhuman focused, and I think just like 50 regular, fully onboarded email customers, obviously more today, but initially they focused on just, we need to solve email for a small number of people. Once you've done that, the hundreds and the thousands will follow because for a small group of unforgiving customers, every time this problem exists, they adopt your software. And that is exactly what, when you have product customer fit, product market fit is the next stage for me. You have like a uh, product market fit when you have a repeatable, reliable and efficient way to reach the people who have the problem your product solves. And all three are necessary. Repeatable meaning it's not just a one-time thing. Hey, we went on product hunt or hey, we sponsored a show or a podcast or whatever. It has to be something that'll just consistently work. And the reason say sponsors won't consistently work is because it's usually the same audience you're going back to. You need to have a repeatable way that'll just they'll keep going, right? Reliable in that uh, you know it should you know p- produce some sort of like conversion rate that works and it shouldn't suddenly break in the middle of nowhere. Uh you shouldn't be able to get out bid on it or anything like that. And efficient is uh, when you get into the depths of things like LTV, lifetime value of your customer versus CAC, customer acquisition cost and all of that sort of stuff. But generally speaking, efficient means it, it, you can actually afford to do this, right? And product market fit means you have a way to bring the product to the market. And these are the characteristics of it. Generally, when you think about entering a market, you'll you'll be forced to look at your funnel. And most people look at their funnel and they look at it from a point of view, if we've got thousands of people in our audience, some of them click the ads, some of them will visit our website, some of them sign up, some on board, some become active users, some go on trial and some start paying, right? And generally, uh, marketers will typically say, we just need to grow the audience. And the danger with startups at your stage is that that's almost certainly the wrong way to go. It's so much more effective, efficient and reliable to start at the end and work backwards. So the temptation is to start with this sort of audience, right, and start your marketing there, and like let the whole world hear about our boogie product that doesn't solve the problem. That's a terrible thing to do. Instead, if you can focus, like you know, the danger of this is like you, you'll find yourself, you know, tweaking adword copy, uh, like playing around with experiments that ultimately don't matter. You can do things like it's easy to spend a hundred grand on like a large amount of like say uh, adword plays. And that might feel like progress because you might actually see signups spike or whatever. And there are, to be clear, there are so many startups who will happily take money off you to do things like this. But if your customers aren't happy, engaged and profitable and sticking around for long enough, the last thing you want is more of them. So what I would say is the best marketing starts with happy paying customers. And you start at that stage, you make sure your customers are happy. They are paying if paying is your thing. If they're not paying, you just want high engagement so you can monetize through eyeballs, adverts, whatever. Um, But generally speaking, you work backwards from there. You first of all, focus on you know happy people. Then you focus on your trialists. Then you focus on making your onboarded people all active. Then you make all your signups onboard and you work backwards through the funnel. That means that you are in a much richer position to actually blow up your audience at the end of all this. The last piece I'd say on this is it's important to think about how people will hear about and ultimately find your product. Again, people often think, well, we just need to have a product marketing page and an AdWord uh, and and we'll advertise against our brand name. And if we're ticket tracking, we might even buy the word ticket tracking and then we're done. Right? There are so many ways people will actually try to uh, find you uh, that you can reach them. On the far right hand side here, you see like the Intercom logo. What, what that is, is like people think I need one of those. So like I'm trying to listen to a podcast. I should listen to this week in startups, right? That's just entirely brand driven. It's brilliant because you don't have to pay for it. It's direct, but it's, it, you know, that's the piece that's hard to grow, right? Um, the next step is competition based. Uh, this is a larger market. This is people who are, say, in our case, they might be frustrated with their current support or engagement tool. Or in the case of a podcast, they might be frustrated with the boredom that they're listening in, in all these other podcasts. So they start looking for different versions. And in that world, you want to run competitive marketing. You want to have competitive landing pages. You want to say, "Stop using the boring old incumbent and start using us." Another way people will shop is to look at things like by you know category by category. So like. They might have something like, I think I need to use something in the customer engagement space. And they might look at one of those, you know, grids that maps out every type of piece of software out there. And you need to make sure that you're putting your hand up to be in the right category. Uh, and lastly, there are people who actually don't know how to solve their problem. So oftentimes we'll, we get a lot of say traffic for people who are asking the question, why do all my signups quit? And that is like, quite a distance away from you should buy customer engagement software that embeds in your product and we have to build all those bridges for them so that they realize their problem actually it is attached to a category there are a set of competitors and we are the best of them now there are lots more people who shop for you know problems than there are say people who shop for intercom in intercom language this is exactly like this is a very real example for for us from a few years ago um people are coming to a website not buying that that's a problem and Everyone's bidding on that, like uh, conferences, uh, growth people, A-B testing software, all these sort of things. That's one area where we have to compete. We also need to sell a tool to talk to customers. We also need to bid against Zendesk and like Salesforce and all these other companies. And then lastly, we also need to be the number one result for Intercom. And we need everyone to actually want Intercom. And th- that's the full spectrum of, of how we think about like uh, reaching the, the market. We have to be present in all ways people think about buying anything that Intercom solves. So just to conclude, uh, I would say at the stage, at the early stage of a software company, the first thing that matters is get your mission, mission and your vision straight. Know exactly what the purpose of your company is and make sure all your employees know it. And they all buy into it much more than they buy into any other reason to work there. Lots of people want to work in tech, but do they want to work on your mission is a huge question. Secondly, speed is the fundamental characteristic of a successful startup. Yes, that means hard work. Yes, that means hiring for talent. Yes, that means focus. Yes, that means diligence. It can mean long hours. It can mean all of these things. But speed is not an option. It's a, it's a mandatory requirement. Thirdly, product market fit. Uh, sorry, product customer fit. Make sure you can find a small group of people who don't have any emotional connection or loyalty to you and make sure you can solve their problem specifically. And lastly, Enter the market with your solution when you have done that and enter it fast. I'm Des trainer from Intercom and that's all I wanted to say. Thank you very much.
0: Every startup needs to ensure that they own their intellectual property. And that all starts with filing your trademarks. I have had tons of hassles with different trademarks. I'm not going to get into all the details here. But imagine you have a really great name and a great domain name and then somebody adds a word to it and then they create a competing product and you didn't file your trademark. Now they go and file their trademark and now they are gonna try to stop you from using the trademark that you forgot to file. Don't be this person. You wanna get your trademarks done. And if you don't know where to start, look no further than Brain Base File, a clean, simple and automated trademark filing platform that gives anyone the ability to protect their best ideas. There is no need to spend thousands of dollars on a fancy law firm to file your trademark for you. Nope, you can do everything yourself in a few easy steps. Brain-based file gives you goods and services recommendations using AI so you can avoid back and forth office actions with the U.S. Patent Trademark Office and you get to eliminate all that human error. They also offer full transparency into the USPTO process with step-by-step notifications and real-time updates on your trademark's approval. No one likes dealing with trademarks but file makes it easy. Head to brainbase.com slash twist and enter the code twist at checkout to file your first trademark now for just $169. That's a 15% discount, and that's a fraction of what you would pay to have a law firm do it. Brainbase.com slash twist. All right, Des, great job as always. Let's get into speed. Uh, obviously, the reason why startups win is because they move faster than the incumbents. That is a great asset. You spend a lot of time talking about speed and hiring people who want to go fast. Is there a type of personality that is uh, aligned with this, uh, you know, going fast? Or can everybody go fast? And it's just a matter of during the interview process telling somebody, we're going to move fast. And if you're not comfortable with moving fast, because you came from a big company that, you know, went slow, because that was important for their mission is to go slow and be cautious maybe they work at ge and the nuclear division and going slow is an asset how do you get talented people to embrace going fast
2: i think the the characteristic you're looking for is risk tolerance because going fast inevitably means you're going to make more mistakes mm. that's that's the thing that's going to happen. And like people, you know, will get freaked out about, oh my God, we shipped that thing and it didn't work and the customers didn't like it. And I'm like, yeah, and that's why we unshipped it. And now we're on to the next project.
1: Whereas right. I think
2: if your previous company was one where like, and you know, there are valid reasons to move slowly, like banking software, nuclear power plants, whatever, right? Uh But if, you, if your previous company was one where like, hey, we only have 500 enterprise customers and they'll quit if we make a mistake. Yeah, fine. That's, you know, I, I can understand why you'd be trained that way, but you need to like, have an appetite for risk. I think that's the invariant that's hard to fix. Like most people, the, like in Intercom, if you, you you kind of jump on this like very very fast conveyor belt in a sense. So you being slow isn't really an option. But you need to be okay with the idea that every now and then we'll make a wrong decision, we'll abandon the strategy, we'll change something, we'll you know, reorg whatever. And we're okay with the fact that we make mistakes. And 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 like you know, making mistakes means means we're making things. And that's like that's the the trade off. That's the real characteristic you look for. Are you okay? moving fast, taking risks, putting your name on something and realizing it didn't work, etc.
0: So that ownership combined with permission to make mistakes is part of this social contract when you come join a startup. I think that's just a great way you framed it. Okay, so let's talk about something interesting that happened uh, during the pandemic, which was we were all forced to work remote. And uh, with the exception of frontline workers, uh, thank you for your service. Um, in that, what I found is things are now moving at a breakneck speed and people are being cutthroat about being efficient. So, as but one example, founders used to love to meet in person. Their goal was to get that in person meeting because they thought they could sway you. And that was the important thing was to get in the room and spend 90 minutes, you know, and, and extend the meeting for as long as possible. Now I'm seeing founders say, Hey, let's do a quick 20 minute call. I'll run you through the short deck. You can ask me questions. Then let me know if you think it's a fit, we can go deeper. And so now I'm seeing three, four companies in the time I used to take to see one. And I'm doing twice as many deals at twice (laughs) the the, uh, investment amount per deal, Mm -hmm. all because of the pandemic. And I have a thesis, which is, hey, during the pandemic, you're getting to meet more companies. Therefore you're finding more fits. Uh, and therefore, um, you can place more bets and then vice versa. The reason why so many people are getting funded is because they're getting to meet more investors and therefore there's more fit. So a long way of, um, sort of asking, have you seen something simpler in the product space or running companies where, gosh, everybody being forced to be remote is making people more cutthroat, brisk, fast, whatever.
2: Yes. Yes. The thing I noticed most is, and we see this in Intercom too. Uh people are realizing that like meetings of like 30 minute blocks of time chunks, which is the kind of the norm, right? They're uh, they're quite expensive and maybe not as necessary as we often thought. And I think uh the Zoom fatigue is a real thing. So we, we have a lot of meetings. Like today I had like four or five meetings that lasted like seven minutes, you know. Like they just needed to hear it from me straight about what we were doing, and I said it to them. But, what I also see is a lot of meetings getting replaced by like just you know moving towards a written culture like you're probably the same at launch where you' just you know people just post in slack, here's what I'm doing today. They don't need to meet you every morning, you don't have a daily stand up routine. they just say like people are finally w- realizing that like reading is twice as fast as listening, and mm. that's like when you realize that you realize well, if your culture really wants to speed up, you move to a written culture, you move to an asynchronous wow. written culture where business moves at the speed of thought mm. and uh and I think like, so we see that in Intercom where just things are happening so much faster because I'm realizing I can send you a Google Doc that outlines my thinking. And if I take the time to write it well, we don't need to talk. And that's an actual time save, even though it takes me longer to write the doc. If it deletes the meeting, that's a win. And specifically, if, if it can be reused and trickle down the org, that's double so. I'm seeing a little bit of fallback onto things like the like glooms, you know, when you send a video that narrates through a piece. Yeah. That, that, that's working as well. And then on the investing side, I'm getting the same thing. I'm like literally... And I, you know, for me, I'm, I'm, I'm very grateful for this. Like we don't need to meet. I'm also trying to get out of the meetings as well. I'm like, Hey, look, I actually, if you need a decision by Sunday, can we just back and forth this over email or SMS or whatever? Yeah. Cause you know, and it, I'm totally comfortable writing a check based on what I heard in email. I don't feel like looking the founder in the eye is that important uh, to me for the types of checks I'm writing and for like the early stage I'm going in. It's already loaded with risk anyway. Uh, so like, you know, character testing isn't going to be something that that's a useful variable for me. Um, so I, I think like we are seeing everything speeding up because of the move to written, the async nature, people are pissed off jumping on zoom calls all day. And and I, I just, I don't think we're going to necessarily bounce back to like, Hey, let's all go and, you know, meet in our local coffee shops and go back to one hour pitch decks and all that. I don't see it happening.
0: Yeah. I, I am now thinking I'm going to have a, a lunch with, you know, key members of the team every other week uh, or, you know, different members. and. I ha- you know I have to eat lunch at some point anyway, and mm-hmm. it's primarily going to be for socialization totally and you know to hear how they're doing, hear how their kids are, what's going on in their life, and enjoy a meal together and then I love this written word I've been using notion and I've become addicted to it. other people are using Rome and some other solutions yeah, yeah. and we used to use Google Docs for it, but it doesn't have that sort of singular giant document wiki effect and I'm telling everybody if if you're explaining this to me, I want in your daily start of day or end of day, start of week, end of week, a link to the notion page that explains this. Please mm-hmm. make a notion page about this best practice and share it with folks. And now when we do our weekly staff meeting, we used to go through a bunch of charts. Now I tell everybody post the charts into Slack and everybody comment on the charts, what questions you have, and then I'll read the questions. Mm-hmm. And if there's no questions, we don't need to pull up the chart. And now we're having higher level discussions. So, you know, it's really fascinating. I miss all the people I work with greatly and I want to see them and hang out with them. But the fact that people are happier being around their families, you know, having their own schedule, you know, it really has made me um, double down on work from home, but it doesn't work for everybody. So, Mm -hmm. how do you think about mentorship? and young people or young in their career doesn't necessarily be an age thing but you know there's a mentorship that occurs in person so we're building on the fabric that we've built for the last decade you and i in our companies Mm -hmm. would we have this strong culture at launch or at intercom i wonder if we didn't have that time together you know in in the trenches so how do you think about that what's lost
2: i think lost is like the the sense like when people live, have left intercom during the pandemic, I often joke that they're just swapping us for a different tab in the same browser because that's what <laughs> that, that's what moving company really is at this point. it's like you know of course it's gonna be another slack channel, but like none of these things are unique in a sense I think like the sense of company identity uh like the idea that I am an intercomrade and uh, I have friends in this company that we met uh, you know as we were watching the product demos over you know having beers or whatever you lose all of that and and I think it people will struggle to recreate this and like I don't think anyone has a great answer yet. Like I'm seeing all these like epic blog posts written about here's how to make hybrid work, but m- mostly written by people who have yet to make hybrid work in a sense. Like we're all, yes. we're all we are all know we're going back to this three day a week thing. None of us know how it's going to work. There's a lot of software companies targeting it saying like, oh, here's a way to automatically calendar so you're always at work at the same time as your colleagues, whatever. I think there might be some apps to, that could be useful here, but generally speaking, I don't know what it would be like to be a 22 year old fresh out of college joining a company today going a year without meeting anyone and they, bear in mind like for those specifically at that point in life that's where people find their friends potentially future partners just a social scene it's probably often where they find their next job true people in the current job and all that yeah like, so there's a lot of that that's kind of been stolen a lot of like the say like post-work drinks chatter that like would happen that would spread other pieces of information like there's a lot of that that's being cut out i actually don't have an immediate oh here's what you should do i think your point about um moving to like Deliberate social gatherings with your team is really valuable. We, we do that at Instagram as well. One, one shift we've made recently is, um, you know, that Jeff Bezos style thing where, like, if for anyone who's presenting, they, they write a six page memo or maximum of six pages and yeah. we all read it at the start of the meeting and we just comment either major or minor. And major means like we have to go through this before I approve. And minor means just FYI, here's some shit that you should think about. But, um, we do that. And because of that, we get through the meeting in like, oftentimes like 20, 30 minutes. What would have been like a two hour yeah. conversation. And then we have like 90 minutes for like, how's your weekend? How are the kids? how's your son recovering well? Whatever. And, uh, and like I, we're now joking about like there, our next, our first and next actual offsite when, like, when I get back to San Francisco, uh, we're probably just going to hang out. Like we don't actually need a big agenda because we were getting through our topics pretty well. And I think like that hangout is just as important because there will be hard, like interims on a tear right now, but there will be hard times ahead. And, there's a lot of folks who are new to the exec team that I've yet to even meet in person. Like I've never met a CFO or a CRO in real life. And uh, and we're, we have to go to war together over the next few years. So like, there's a lot of like, we. it's more important for me that we build the social bonds than it is that we like, you know, uh, have the serious conversation eyeball to eyeball about optimizing some advertising campaign or whatever.
0: It is so interesting when you think about it, the cost of quitting a job where you've never met anybody and you have no fabric, and no real stake in the company other than the transactional nature of compensation uh, is it gives people the ability to say, yeah, I'm just going to change tabs, I'm just going to move over mm-hmm. to another tab, I'll try that. And then I can flip back and forth. In a way, there's something lost there, which is you didn't get a chance to bond with a group of people and we're social beings. In another way, you get to find a perfect fit for yourself. And mm-hmm. this idea that you're going to stay in a job because you don't want to have on your resume that you flipped after six months. That's actually kind of a good thing as well because you really don't want people who are unhappy or it's not a fit for grinding it out and then creating a toxic culture or feeling definitely. resentful.
2: Yeah, that's definitely true. I, I think in general, exploring the solution space as a young employee is a good thing. Like in a, I, I definitely don't negatively look at people who, have hopped too often i do become skeptical if they've hopped and like frequently and advanced at the same time so like entry-level engineer senior engineer and like you know and a like, principal of engineering all in the space of like you know four or five months per, per hmm. stint or whatever um and, and i think i'm seeing a bit of that happen in because the the market is so competitive for tech town right now that like People are just basically offering slightly more senior roles to try and get people out of companies, ah. uh, r- regardless of merit. And there's definitely an opportunistic thing you can do right now, which is, I think, um, if you're smart, you can kind of outrun your BS by like, talk a big game, get the job, quit before they got find it. you out, take the next ah. role at the next company, whatever. Yeah, title inflation
0: uh, each time. And then yeah, people yeah, on I, the I, other I, side of yeah, the table are like, sure, yeah. if, if you want a VP title, we'll give it to you if that gets you in the door, because we got to fill yeah. the seat
2: that's exactly it like so wow. and you do you do see that and you, know, you don't see it in engineering generally because at some point it's like yo can you code you know like there's an <laughs> actual there's a hard test right like yeah but yeah. in the areas where you, you, yeah exactly well in the areas where, where like we're frankly like talking is, is 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 the skill uh you can uh, and when, it, when like some per person's under pressure to hire like is it we really need this head of blah, blah blah you'll you'll see like mishires all over the place uh and i think that's that is something, or it's going to be cleaned up post Corona. Everyone's going to be like, "Huh, oh, we really adopted a lot of people here who aren't as sharp as they seemed initially in interview." You know,
0: is this the end of middle management or management in general? Because people are managing themselves, and in a remote w- way, you're forced to manage yourself, or you can't have the job.
2: I, 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 if um like i i've definitely seen more self-directed people or just generally like the this the written culture forces a lot more just own your stuff if you think about middle management as just being like uh i listen to peter and i tell paul what to do or whatever uh yeah i think that that type of role is, is less useful i think like um what you know in intercom's definition of middle management it's usually like you know i control these seven teams and i report to this director of the support product or whatever so that type of uh, role is uh, still essential because you're yeah. you're still doing like resource balancing and, and all that sort of stuff within your own group.
0: Do you think there's going to be a grand reorganization at some of these giant tech companies? I've you know we've seen folks say, "Hey, listen, you got to come back three days a week." People saying, "I never want to come back." One of the things I'm realizing is there are people who want to go to offices. Okay, that's easy. We let them go to the office. There are people who are a level performers and I'm thinking about this matrix in my mind: high performer. Medium performer, low performer. And then you have fully remote work from the office. Well, any great company should be getting rid of low performers, whether it's 10%, 1%, or 25% of your workforce. There's no debate there. And then on the other end, anybody who's a real contributor, who cares if they're at home or if they're at the office? This is a killer sales executive. This is a killer developer. It need not matter where they do their work from. And then you have everything in the middle. Let's say average performers, but who have potential to maybe become serious contributors maybe people who are low average, above average. That's where I think uh, we're going to see maybe a two class system come in. You're an average performer, but we want to invest in you. It's going to might be hard to do without you being in person more, and they would not have the option. Whereas the A list players would get to pick anybody in the middle, you know, you got to come to the office or the company picks. And then obviously, you want to get rid of folks who don't do you think that's uh, what we'll see here in this grand reconciliation when we go back to offices
2: i think the first thing we'll, like i think everyone's going to run back for initially and everyone will, will there'll be this sudden realization that hey turns out workspaces with good air conditioning and nice food and purposely designed for work with nice meetings and all the nice meeting rooms people are going to love it initially that that's what hmm. like we've been dabbling with returning to office a little bit intercom and intercom like the, the appetite is there from the employees they like they they do realize like People actually, you know, you know, architects design offices for work and there's something useful about that. So I think there'll be an initial storm back. Uh Remote people, will, fully remote people will always be fully remote and that's fine. Like companies will have to come to their own decision about what percentage, uh, what's the threshold for doing that. Obviously, like, you know, you don't want a, a junior person who's like super inexperienced and needs a lot of mentorship and wants to like learn from other senior engineers. It's just gonna be tough for them to be doing it from a bedroom somewhere. However, I, I think that the next stage, so once everyone rushes back, th- this three-day-a-week thing is going to be complicated because I think we're going to realize maybe we let each team decide its own cadence, but we want people, we want a team behaving the same. I, I think that's what you're going to realize in that mm. if it's like six people in a room and one person on dial-in, oh, it's just going to be worst. messy, right? Like, and it's, it's That person might as well not sides. be there because you even forget yeah, they're totally. there. If somebody
0: forget, I mean, how many times do people forget to dial that person in?
2: Oh, yeah, that somebody,
0: and that person's calling yeah. on the phone. Can somebody pick up their phone and dial me in?
2: Uh, totally. I, I, and like, that's just a horrible experience on both sides. And it's not like, it's not fair on either side, in my opinion. If there's six people in a room having a very high bandwidth conversation, it's just weird to stop and go, okay, let's go over to Johnny now. Johnny, if yeah. you, to, you know, so like, I, I think what does work is we say like Mondays and Tuesdays and uh, Wednesdays or whatever, we're in the office and that's all the office stuff. After that, we have dished out the work. We Everyone knows what they're doing. We don't need to contact regularly. We move to written, async, Slack, Docs, whatever for the other two or three days or whatever your ratio is. And I think just Teams will need to set that uh, operational cadence themselves. I think what uh, you know, I, I I suspect like it'll be like three months after everyone's back mm. before people realize that this is what we need to do. And there will be some kind of rebundling of like some teams will be fully in the office, some teams will be fully remote, and the hybrids will have to agree on the days that they behave like either of those other two teams. Yep. And that's when you're that like. But ultimately, I I. I think you can't just dabble with remote. I think once you're saying some people, especially as you move up senior people, aren't in the office all the time, the shift towards a written culture becomes kind of mandatory because it's either that or just a shitload of meetings to share random pieces of context. And I think that just, you know, that'll get quite expensive and people will work it out.
0: Yeah. Uh, all right, listen, Daz, this has been amazing. Thank you so much. Everybody knows Intercom. I don't need to tell you. It's the industry standard. Great product. Go use it uh i don't know if you have a special url for startups to go to we uh, do we
2: have intercom.com forward slash early stage
0: perfect and i'm sure you'll get a great deal there and of course uh, all of our startups <laughs> use the product and love it so continued success uh, and it's been great to get to know you over these years and i really appreciate you sharing your wisdom with the this week in startups community thank you jason all right we'll see you all next time on this week in startups bye bye